Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and a board-certified lactation consultant. And I'm your co-host, Dr. Karen Bodnar. I am a pediatric hospitalist at Anova Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Virginia Commonwealth University. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. This podcast is produced by the Institute for the Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education and is co-sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Hey, Karen. How are you? I'm good, Anne. How are you doing? Good. So we have a special podcast today because we have some friends on with us. Yeah, I'm really excited because we're going to talk about how to support residents and fellows who are breastfeeding. And um, if anybody doesn't know, residency is the training that doctors go into after they finish medical school and they're um, preparing for their specialty. And fellowship is then further subspecialty training that they might go on to do for many years. Mm-hmm. Right. And of course, we don't want to leave out our good old medical students who help us so much <laughs> in our work. And then also other students as well. I think a lot of what we talk about today will be relevant to like nursing students and other health professional students as well. So, um, so I'm just going to go ahead and introduce our, our uh, guest today. So we have Dr. Helen Johnson. Uh, Dr. Johnson is a surgery, surgery resident at Vidant Medical Center at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. And we have Dr. Rebecca Snyder, who is a surgical oncologist and a hepatobiliary surgeon also at East Carolina University in Greenville. We have Dr. Katrina Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is a breast surgeon and lactation consultant who previously worked for several years at Presbyterian Healthcare in Albuquerque, New Mexico, Um, but she's in the midst of relocating and taking a new position with Sansom Clinic and the Ridley Tree Cancer Center in Santa Barbara, California. So that's a very lucky community to receive uh, Dr. Mitchell. And then we have Dr. Lori Jones, and Dr. Jones is a pediatrician in private practice in Phoenix, Arizona, and she is the genius founder of Dr. Milk, um, which is a physician mother network uh, with the mission of helping physician mothers reach their breastfeeding goals. Um, so, um, So the reason why we have this group gathered today is because Drs. Johnson, Mitchell, and Snyder published a paper Uh, entitled Call to Action, Universal Policy to Support Residents and Fellows Who Are Breastfeeding um, in the Journal of Graduate Medical Education in August of 2019. So I think I'll start uh, talking to Dr. Helen Johnson. Hey, Helen, how are you? Hey, I'm great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Um, So uh, can you first tell me the current situation uh, for breastfeeding residents, like what's going on with them in terms of um, their like risks and challenges with breastfeeding? Sure, absolutely. Um, Well, as uh, Karen said, you know, breastfeeding residents and fellows are kind of a subset of breastfeeding physicians. And we have kind of identified women physicians as a particularly high risk group for not meeting national breastfeeding milestones and having a shorter duration of breastfeeding than they were hoping for. Um, And that seems to be particularly true for residents and fellows. So there's a couple of studies that we discuss in our paper that you know, detail those statistics. And it seems like it always comes back to having a kind of 
kind of a lack of flexibility in their schedule that is a particular challenge, not having enough spaces in which to express milk privately at work and not really having as supportive of a workplace culture as uh, would be beneficial to them. Mm -hmm. I think residents and fellows are kind of juggling a million things at once and sometimes it's hard to even have time to go to the bathroom or or eat lunch. So having time to express breast milk, especially if it's as frequent as every two hours if you have a very little baby at home or depending on your storage capacity can be really quite challenging. Right, right. And um, during the course of this podcast, we're going to talk about the American Academy of Family Physicians um, statement that uh, they updated in June of 2019 that is on the same topic on breastfeeding and lactation support for medical trainees. And um, what they identify in their statement is that we train professionals to understand the importance of breastfeeding and how to support breastfeeding dyads, but then we lack this, we totally lack this commitment and structure in how we support our lactating trainees and professionals, yet they're supposed to be going out there and tell, you know, and helping mothers breastfeed. So it seems like sort of, you know, crazy. Um, mm-hmm. So do you think that some residents and fellows have an easier time than others in achieving their um, breastfeeding goals while they're trying to work? I do. Um, I mean, I am a bit biased as a surgery resident to think that it's harder for me, right, and, and my colleagues, but there are some surveys that that back up that bias of mine, that residents and fellows in procedural specialties do have significantly shorter breastfeeding durations than residents and fellows in purely medical specialties. Um, And there was a fairly recent study that looked at OBGYN residents and compared them to other types of procedural specialties. And it seems like there's a protective effect for OBGYN, probably because there is a more supportive culture in general for breastfeeding and probably a lot more access to adequate lactation facilities in their close to their clinical care area. Yeah, I think I I agree with that because I I, um, have noticed I do a lot of support for the different uh, residency specialties in the UW Lactation Clinic at the University of Wisconsin. And I do find that the surgery residents are most, other than the plastic surgery residents, they seem to have an easier time. (laughs) But general surgery residents, um, you know, oftentimes they tell me that they're put on the trauma, you know, their their trauma rotation right after they come back. And Mm -hmm. in which case, they're not even allowed to pee for 12 hours. And so, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it just seems like totally, there's no... Um, consideration for the that whole for lactation. I think people just don't really think about it. It's you know, breastfeeding is not totally normalized in U.S. culture, much less medical culture, and much less surgical culture, which has been traditionally male dominated. And so it's just not something that crosses people's minds. And I've personally found that when I say, you know, I'm breastfeeding for my child and I need to step away every three to four hours to pump for about 20 to 30 minutes. No one has any objection, really. It's just like, oh, I've never thought about that before, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also, I mean, I guess we'll talk about this later, just the need to not only ask permission, but also to have help from your colleagues um, as well, because they may feel resentful that they have this extra work when they're already so overburdened with the amount of work that they have to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I have to say that, uh, you know, I'm a pediatrician, and so my work environment is certainly very different. I'm not spending hours in the operating room. But also the, the constellation of people I work with is different. So I am in a group of more than 20 
pediatric hospitalists, there are only two men. And so more than half of my partners have breastfed. And when the residents, you know, are coming back to work, we, we do have that awareness. Oh, this is something we need to prepare for. We need to help them think about how it's going to work for them. And that isn't necessarily true in some specialties that are still really male dominated. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's talk for a moment about um, the specialty exams, because that has gotten a lot of press. Um, and I think also uh, Dr. Laura Jones might want to talk about that, too, because I think there's been a conversation about this in Dr. Melk, um, that medical students and residents have had to really fight to have the rights for lactation breaks during their specialty exams. Um, do you want to talk more about that, Helen? And maybe Lori pipe in as well. Sure. Um, so I haven't personally experienced this, but I've read many, many anecdotes, primarily on Dr. Milk and then talking to friends and acquaintances that any of the various examinations that they have to take, whether it's the steps of the medical licensing exam as medical students and early residents or board certification examinations or their so-called in-service examinations, which are kind of practice tests preparing you for that board exam um, throughout your residency or fellowship. There's all different kinds of regulations to get accommodations for breastfeeding or any other accommodations. And it varies between organizations. It varies by test. It varies by testing center. And even when you go through all of the hoops, which can be quite arduous, uh, there are a number of women that have found that they have not been provided with the accommodations that they were assured of. Mm -hmm. Some of them have to request accommodations so far in advance that they may not even be pregnant at the time that they have to meet that deadline. Wow. So by the time they start to request accommodations, they can't get them or they're told, well, we do offer accommodations at this testing center. However, not at the one closest to you know, your home. You have to travel six, seven hours away to this other testing center, which has a lactation room if you would like to take advantage of these accommodations. And that's, that's really tough, especially if you have a young infant at home. Yeah, that's really crazy. Lori, anything to add? Yeah, we, within Dr. Milk, that's been one of the prime themes for the, the testing center problems that um, there's a monopoly in some ways in the number of companies that offer these required tests. And some of uh, the movement in your graduation cycle is dependent on taking them in a timely manner. Um, so residents and fellows and even uh, doctors and surgeons in practice really feel like their backs are against the wall um, to get these tests done when they need to. Um, and even when the corporate policies say we support lactating test takers and here fill out this form, it'll be done, there's absolutely no standardization from center to center. So we started a petition that has several thousand signatures and it's really sitting in my lap to take this um, further with suggestions for the, some of the monopoly companies. But basically, if uh, my belief system is that if they can standardize how many inches apart the computer screens need to be, that they've standardized hundreds of features of these testing centers but yet they allow some of these accommodations to not be standardized. Um, and they sort of throw their hands up and say, well, it's a local center, we can't control it. And I just think that explanation doesn't fly because their whole corporate purpose is standardization. Um, so I think we just need to stand up and say, hey, this is an accommodation that will need to exist 
for you know the foreseeable future and there may be a financial investment for the centers to have the space to do it but your corporate policy needs to match the local environment right right and this is and this is very pertinent you know recognizing that this is a test center issue um, this is this is helpful for everyone you know for people who are taking the pharmacy boards or for you know any any specialty um, and in fact I heard that um, for people taking the lactation boards, that they also struggle to have accommodations to lactate, which is hilarious, which is crazy um, that we have not, that even um, the um, International Board of Lactation, Lactation Consultant Examiners has not been able to have an effect in standardizing this. Yeah. Um, so getting back to residencies and uh, medical training, are there any rules out there, Helen, um, to support lactation for residents and fellows? Well, you mentioned the, the American Academy of Family Physicians kind of statement, but that's not a rule. It's just some, it's very well-written guidelines, but it's not enforceable. But recently, actually this past July 1st, our Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education, which oversees all residencies and fellowships in the United States, for the first time added language mandating lactation accommodations for trainees. Um, this, they kind of put this out about a year ago, but it took effect July 1st. And they kind of specifically say that trainees must have adequate time and an appropriate space in which to lactate, including refrigeration capabilities, and recommend that there be a telephone and a computer in the room, but that's not mandated. And they do specify that all of this should be in close proximity to patient care. And it's all under the umbrella of wellness. So this is a, a huge step considering that it's 2019 and this is the first time any language about breastfeeding has been in the regulations. Um, mm -hmm. But clearly it's just a guideline and it's only as good as uh, how well it's enforced. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so actually let's talk about the, let's go back to the um, AAFP uh, recommendation. Um, and I know that you have a table in your paper about like some specific actions and, um, and these are uh, quite um, sort of uh, well-developed in the AAFP guideline as well. Um, so let's talk about those lactation facilities a little bit more. Um, so you had mentioned um, about the recommendation to have a room that's not a bathroom that's close to where the where they're working, where residents and medical students, fellows are working, so they don't have to go a long distance. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and then having a computer, right? So at the at our institution, that was um, a source of contention because I think some institutions will go by what the federal break time law says. You know, to have a room, it doesn't have to have a sink; it just has to have you know, an outlet, you know, like a, a place that's not going to be invaded upon uh, for women to, women to express milk, but it doesn't say it has to have a sink. Um, but this is asking these, but the lactation facility that really would be effective and humane for anyone, and particularly we're focusing on medical uh, graduate education, goes beyond that. So let's talk about that. Sure. So, um... The AFP statement gives some pretty detailed recommendations and we kind of reiterate those in our table. And there are actually quite a few guidelines out there to kind of quantify um, how accommodating a lactation room is. 
So there's national grading scales, kind of a good, better, best that include all kinds of amenities, like whether the, the woman brings her own pump, or whether there's a hospital grade pump available, for example, or whether the woman provides her own cooler for her milk, or if there's a refrigerator in the room and so forth. And a lot of states have their equivalent uh, grading systems as well. And then there's recommendations from the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, and there's actually recommendations for designing lactation rooms by the American Institute of Architects. So there's really quite a lot of um, evidence and guidelines out there to really maximize how effective these rooms are. And I do think it's interesting in the AAFP guidelines that actually the, I think it's the only thing in bold in their whole statement says that trainees should not be expected to share lactation rooms with patients or other employees. And I think that they're trying to recognize the kind of unique needs of trainees because, you know, a patient clearly doesn't need to have a, a telephone or electronic medical record access on a, on a computer <laughs> while, they're, while they're trying to express breast milk. But a lot of trainees, myself included, you know, feel guilty or worried about being you know, a bad team member or worried about a patient, and that will delay us taking time to go and express milk. And if we know that we're immediately available to answer questions or check up on a lab in the computer or can be writing notes while pumping, we'll be much more likely to actually go and take that break. So things like that are much more important for trainees. Right, right. And also, if you have to answer the phone, um, you don't want someone walking in who would hear a private conversation about patient care as well. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And it would seem or if it's, I was going to say, if it's a shared space, we used to have a, a big room with three curtained areas, right? So we have to be conscious of who can hear us. Right, right. So, so Karen, um, if you, since you had said that uh, you and your colleagues are very aware of the needs of the, med the medical students and residents that you're working, that you're training, um, when you envision having a room for your trainees, what do you what do you think are priorities in addition anything in addition to what we've talked about? Um, I've moved around a lot and I've seen a lot of things that work. And it's interesting some of the preconceived notions that I had as a medical student and a resident about things that might make it easier to pump. Um, that didn't actually, they weren't necessarily the things that helped. So I thought when I was an intern that I would have such an easier time pumping when I was on my NICU, my neonatal ICU rotation, because there was a pump room that was inside the ICU and, you know, it would be so convenient. I wouldn't have to walk very far. But in reality, it was very difficult because we would round for four to seven hours in a row and it was very difficult to break away during that time and so um, while location is certainly important not having to walk 10 minutes each way makes a big difference um, the other thing that even in my group that is very supportive is problematic is when you're not allowed to break away I just recently had a resident who you know grounded in the PICU for seven hours and then came to lecture and somebody told her, oh, you can wait till after this lecture. And she was like, no, and left, which I applaud her. Um, and that shows that even in a group that's generally supportive, everybody has to be in line. And that's why I'm so excited to have this policy and to have the support of the ACGME. 
Yeah. So that, so we could jump to one of the pieces that was in the AFP, which is about developing a culture of support from faculty, staff, colleagues, and administration, which when you think about it means a lot. Um, so things like um, understanding the rights of mothers so that, so that everyone who comes into contact with um, the trainees um, and faculty, like we should be including ourselves in there, right? You know, like our young colleagues and nurse practitioners, um, understanding that, that this is a right that these mothers have and that we have to make that available so that if you know that someone's lactating on the team when you're rounding, you are, are aware that, hey, it's probably time for them to go, like helping them, making sure that they can take that exit, right? And yeah, I, and I oh, sorry, ahead. I was just gonna say also that you know the choice as to whether or not people will leave and go to a private space or choose to pump in a lecture or at a nurse's station or in rounds. Um, I think that's also quite contentious at some places, and this the supportive atmosphere sort of ties into that. Mm -hmm. Lori, were you gonna say something or Helen? Yes, I wanted to mention how many posts. I mean, I, I could go back through and collect the data uh, within Dr. Milk. We have 20,000 members right now, and the group has been in existence for 10 years. So we have thousands and thousands of posts. Um, and one of the biggest components of this culture shift um, are people who are reported for pumping uh, to human resources. They are actually anonymously able to report a resident or a student or a faculty member for pumping because it makes the person uncomfortable even if they're not in the same room even if it's not a shared space um, it, it, there are people in the medical field who don't like to even think about the milk being expressed in the same room or a room that they walk near so that is such a fundamental um, problem in the culture that these policies are, are a great way to address at the level of administration and HR. Right, absolutely. And, and uh, we'll talk more about that too. And could I add a comment also? I think, um, you know, this was one of the real reasons that we wanted to write this call to action to begin with. I think there's such a hierarchical culture in medical training in general. And then, you know, in surgical training, that can be even more pronounced. And so I think one of the biggest issues is that currently the burden is really on the resident to advocate for herself to say, I need this break or I need to step out um, from rounds or the operating room. And that can be very uncomfortable um, with that hierarchical environment. And so I think what we hoped to do and, and um, and I think is really our goal of this paper is to take that burden away from the residents and try to have a more standardized approach so that the residents are not fully responsible for trying to advocate for themselves, that we can ensure that faculty um, and program administrators can advocate for residents um, and kind of take some of that weight off their shoulders. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and it comes from you know a group of physicians who um, have us who have a social team breastfeeding medicine um, as well as physicians who are in training and who are actually working um, 
And I, I want to come back to that in a little in a little bit about this culture of support. But first, I just want to talk more about um, just the operating room because I'm so interested in hearing more about ideas because we have this group of surgeons here. So, Rebecca, would you want to talk more about like your ideas about how um, surgeons can be supported in their work? Because I feel like those long hours, those long operations, um, and particularly your operations are probably pretty long being hepatobiliary. Um, you know, what are ways that women can be supported who are uh, operating? Yeah, and I think um, this is something that probably um, both Helen and Katrina experienced as well. I, um, with both of my children, I um, had issues with scrubbing into long cases and not having an opportunity to pump and and unfortunately got mastitis several times, but I did not feel like I could speak up, um, especially after my first child and really ask for a break. Um, Fortunately, after my second one, I got a little bit more assertive and, and actually a couple of times had a, um, one of my co-fellows scrub me out and, and basically just directly um, addressed it with the faculty and said I needed a break. Um, and, and it was better received than I would have anticipated. Um, but it, it, again, it's just such a, it's so uncomfortable to, ha to have to um, ask for that, particularly when the faculty you work with tend to be male and, um, and aren't as familiar with kind of the needs and demands of breastfeeding. But I will say since I trained, there's been a tremendous change kind of in even the pumping, um, I think, equipment that, that was not accessible to me. And so I'll let Helen speak to that. But I think that now there, um, there's, there are a lot more opportunities for residents or fellows to even pump in the OR. And, um, and so I'll let Helen speak to that. Great. Sure, so there's a variety of wearable breast pumps that um, people can use and you know our, our surgical gowns are protect us from bodily fluids penetrating through and getting on our skin so it makes sense that they would protect any kind of milk spillage that may occur but unlikely to occur from getting onto the patient um, and these pumps can be really effective for some people and really helpful you can either scrub out really briefly to slip them in, such as Freemies or a Willow, or even the LV now. Um, or you can kind of put them on in place and have a little pocket-sized battery-operated pump, um, like one of the, one of, oh, what's the, what is the really small one? The, uh, the Baby Buddha is like, is very small. And you can either ask one of the circulating nurses to kindly press the start button, or if you kind of slip it underneath your sterile gown, somewhere that you can touch through the gown, you can turn on the button. But there's been some funny stories about people not knowing things. Like for example, the willow has these kind of blue lights. So kind of all of a sudden they kind of surreptitiously poke this button and they're trying to pump really casually and like not be noticed. And then their attendings like, why is your chest glowing blue? You know, so even when you try and be kind of really private about it and unobtrusive, um, I think there's there's often opportunities to normalize breastfeeding, whether you like it or not. <laughs> right, but also it's good for the attending or wh whoever the co-surgeon is to um, to know that hey, you know, this is something you can do, so that they can share that. And there's an expectation that this is something that should be that that this is something that can be done, that can be accommodated. I, I, and the I AFP think... statement actually includes some language about this, and I was grateful to have the opportunity to help bounce some ideas off of them when they were writing that portion of, the, of their statement. Um, and I wanted to be careful to not make it an expectation that, that residents and fellows not scrub out 
just because these wearable pumps are an option, they don't work well for everybody. Um, and not everyone can afford them because they do tend to be costly. And I haven't tried it myself, but I would imagine that having everything in position and kind of waiting for several hours before you turn on your pump can be kind of uncomfortable and probably cause some edema of the nipple and areola. So there are challenges to it, but I think that residents and fellows should be supported in using these wearable breast pumps if they choose, but also supported in scrubbing out to express milk or if their baby's nearby to directly breastfeed while they're, you know, taking their lactation break. Right. I think that um, there are some, like you said, there are some limitations with some of the wearable breast pumps. You know, some of them don't really sort of kick into the um, expression mode unless you have a certain amount of milk in the reservoir. So then women with a low supply have challenges there. And, um, and then they're expensive and sometimes don't work as well. And so I think one thing that we know from lactation is that everyone's got a different journey. Everyone has a different need. Freemies don't always work for everyone. Um, so they should be, um, they should have a, every lactating mother who's um, in this situation should have the opportunity to say what their needs are. Because um, if the expectation is like, okay, you have to use these freemies or you have to use these um, the willow, um, you know, and it may not work for them, then suddenly they fail and that's not, that's the only option they have, you know, so we have to make sure that we're flexible and, and, um, the recommend, and, and, um, and recognizing that women have different needs when it comes to lactation. This is Katrina, if I could just jump in quickly about the operating room culture. Can you hear me? Oh, yes. I okay. <laughs> I'm by an air conditioner right now. But I just wanted to jump in because I think it's, it's like Helen said, it's so important to support every individual woman with what is working for her with pumping. But ultimately, it's about changing the culture of the OR and the culture of support. And I have to say, I wanted to jump in because I was so impressed with the way Rebecca advocated for herself when we were fellows together. I in breast surgical oncology and she was in surgical oncology at MD Anderson. And I can remember her saying that some of the, you know, very traditional older male attendings had actually piped up and said, do you need to scrub out now um, for some of, was it Rebecca, the HIPEC cases when you were doing, um, you know, chemotherapy, intraperitoneal chemotherapy, and they actually thought that you should should scrub out to protect your breast milk. Wasn't it yeah. something like that? Yeah, yeah. There was one faculty um, who was who basically did not want me to be around the chemotherapy during the perfusion part. So he would insist that um, because he he was concerned there could potentially be some you know contamination. But yeah, I mean, I think I was I was surprised that once I advocated for myself that that. Um, it was actually very well received. And I did have several faculty who would initiate and say in, in their own awkward way, if, if you have something you need to take care of right now, you know, this would be a good time kind of thing, kind of thing. But um, so, but I just hope that we can make this more of a, a standardized um, and, and, and culture that would be more accepting. And, and I think a lot of it is awareness. I mean, I think so much of the time, it's just that, that people, it's not on, in the forefront of their mind, and they haven't thought about it in a long time, um, if it's been 20 years since their wife had kids. And so I think making it something that people think about and, and are aware of will really help change the culture. And in terms of the wearable breast pumps, I think, <clears throat> you know, um, 
I do know that there that I think that's going to be a big culture shift. I think even among women surgeons, I think um, th I think that that it's going to be so important that we change that over time. I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge in surgery, um, but I'm optimistic that there's already been um, residents that that are doing this and that it's becoming more commonplace because I think it will make it easier for everyone if that's um, a method of lactation that works for them. Mm -hmm. That's a great and point. I, yeah. And I think that proximity issue and, and again, the cost of the, the wearable um, breast pumps, it's, you know, they're, they're quite expensive, but proximity to the OR for um, pumping purposes is extremely important, particularly with, with fast turnover times in surgical outpatient centers or other ORs that have quick turnover times. If you have, you know, you need 15 minutes at a minimum to get connected to the pump, express the milk, and store the milk, that that could be easily the, the turnover time, 15 to 20 minutes for another case. So mm -hmm. having to walk 10 minutes down the hall, you know, had, Karen had described the NICU setup. Um, it's, it's really, really a, a huge consideration, but the, the more I think we have awareness of it. My last hospital, the nurses had done a quality improvement project to um, change one of the showers into a pumping room. So I think it's on every level, whether it's the, the surgeon leaders or the other OR leadership or nursing leadership, um, it's, it's really important to, to normalize it all. Right, right. And I think also like making sure that people can leave their stuff in the room so that they can just go and pump and then leave it and not have to worry about restoring. And they can leave their milk in there so that there is a refrigerator, which are things that are not in the federal break time policy about, you know, the location. You know, Katrina made me think of something which there are a few institutions that have really great policies out there, and it's nice when we can highlight those and steal from them. There was a policy at Virginia Commonwealth University where they sort of worked to look at how, when they are having sort of fast turnover of operating rooms, they can allow for um, moms to express milk. And really, when we sort of are aware of this as physicians, it helps those other hospital employees who have less power. So that, you know, circulating nurse, that scrub tech, you know, people who really have even less control over what's going on in the operating room, but also may need a break during a long procedure. And so having, you know, these policies in place helps all of those individuals. Right, right, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, about, when these trainees come back come back from maternity leave, um, what are some considerations? Maybe I'll go back to Helen. Uh, that that should be considered for them upon returning. That would that would help them. I think having a conversation with the program director before you come back from maternity leave to kind of discuss your anticipated needs for for having milk expression breaks is can be really important, um, especially if there's not a whole bunch of awareness on the part of the program director about the variability in, in individuals' needs. They might, you know, try to educate themselves and read something that says every four hours, but a lot of residents have to return to work after pretty short maternity leave, sometimes only one week, but, you know, hopefully closer to at least three or four weeks, um, lest they have to 
uh, increase the length of their training. So most of those residents are really going to need to pump quite frequently, more on the order of every two hours. So just setting expectations up front and having kind of a top-down approach where the program director can then contact all of the different um, heads of the teams that the resident is going to be working on and say, you know, here's a reminder of our policy. This person is going to need to us to execute this policy and is going to need our support and, you know, as her needs change, which they likely will, we will um, discuss her needs and she will work with individual teammates on a day-to-day -day basis to find good opportunities to pump and let you know what's working and what's not working. But just basically always asking for feedback and what people need. Mm -hmm. And then maybe also the consideration of certain rotations, depending on the residency. Um, some being more outpatient, you know, nine to eight, you know, eight, not nine to five, never nine to five, but, you know, seven thirty to five or eight to five, um, as opposed to a trauma rotation or um, an overnight um, rotation of a very busy service. Um, Absolutely. That can be, that can be a big consideration too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could I mention, Anne, sure. um, in... Uh, I don't believe they've published it in a journal yet, but for Phoenix Children's Hospital, um, where I practice in town, at the Pediatric Academic Society meeting, I believe two years ago, they presented their shepherding program, where essentially once a resident identified themselves through HR or to the program directors as being pregnant, um, they were sort of matched up with mentors that were you know, either the same level training um, or nearby and with faculty members to plan safe rotations for the end of pregnancy to reduce uh, preterm labor and complications mm -hmm. and to get um, basically to start talking about breastfeeding at that stage because 97% of physician mothers initiate breastfeeding. Um, you know, it's one of those almost presumed uh, things that people will want to participate in expressing milk when they return. So the shepherding program, they showed success that if you start from the very beginning of pregnancy and lay out the rotations before and after, thinking about expression times, also the age of the baby, the need to be close by, when could they see them, that they had success in um, reaching breastfeeding goals as well as making it to full-term delivery. Nice. Right. Very nice. And then also reduced work hours, too. I don't know if you mentioned that just maybe having people come back part-time, right? They don't necessarily have to jump into the regular schedule uh, that they had, that they would normally have if they came back from like surgery or something like from, you know, like on medical leave for another reason. I think that would be ideal, but is pretty challenging depending on the different board uh, regulations. But I mean, even the American Board of Surgery now has a six-year option for kind of flexible training. So it, it is moving in that direction, but still kind of easier said than done in a lot of cases. And to kind of jump off of what Lori was saying, in the absence of a shepherding program, or particularly if you're at an institution where there's not a lot of other breastfeeding uh, trainees, a resource like Dr. Milk is just so, so valuable to make you feel like you're not alone and, you know, get some tips and support from people who are facing similar issues. And there's really a lot of creative women on there. And uh, we try and keep record of kind of the most helpful posts or some really great ideas so that we can refer back to them and say, hey, there's been lots of discussion about creative ways to balance this breastfeeding in this particular aspect of training. So go look at, at these posts for some great ideas. And 
it's just such a wealth of information. I'm so grateful to have that resource. So thanks so much, Lori, and for everybody for making that a possibility. Oh, yeah, well, it's just uh, yeah. amazing for so many, so many physicians that I know in my region, Lori, who have relied on Dr. Milk for not only education, but support as well. That, it, that feels good. This is a big year to celebrate the 10 years. Um, and I just wanted to point out that, that Helen is in her second year of being a volunteer moderator for Dr. Milk. And that I appreciate so much having her efforts there um, and what they gained from being moderators. We applied uh, to the IBCLE to have hours credited to moderators um, so that they can work towards becoming a lactation consultant through that work so that hopefully, you know, we have some mutually beneficial volunteer time. Mm -hmm. yeah, Absolutely. As a surgery resident, I don't get as many opportunities to, you know, counsel about breastfeeding or work with diets as, you know, women in uh, pediatrics or OBGYN or family practice, for example. So those hours are really valuable to me. So definitely mutually beneficial. <laughs> it's a great point because it's so important to have surgeons who are lactation consultants or breastfeeding medicine specialists. But then, like you said, Helen, you know, you have a busy life. Your training is really intensive. You finish training at a much, much older age than uh, pediatricians and family physicians and OBGYNs. And so getting that education to, to be able to optimally support uh, breastfeeding patients um, is, is definitely challenging. Mm -hmm. Katrina's working hard on making that kind of a more standard part of at least breast surgical training and we're trying to inject little bits of education into the culture every time we go to a surgical meeting kind of whether they like it or not. Yes, <laughs> amazing. And it I, seems I, like they really like it from what I've heard from her. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I just have, I want to just kind of get back to this training issue and I'd want to bring up the issue that I said we'd talk about later which is about um, the culture of support from faculty, staff, colleagues, and administration. And the question is like, who owns this? You know, it seems like um, the best way to form policies that are standard and like the shepherding um, strategy that Lori talked about, um, when you're dealing with an academic center, who owns that? Is it, is it someone in the department? Is it someone who goes above the departments in, the, in like the physician wellness, if there is a physician wellness um, department? Um, and maybe it's different places, but, but I think there needs to be some sort of standard that this, that this is part of someone's job. They get paid for managing this program of support for, uh, for training mothers. That's a great question, and I, I don't think that there's a clear answer at this point. I know that there's been several institutions that have formalized policies at the department level, um, and a few of them have been published. I think the University of Michigan was kind of the, the leader in that, and they've published through their about their surgery policy and their pediatrics policy. Mm -hmm. And related to the supportive culture, there's actually an appendix in their pediatric paper um, that gives a really nice summary of why breastfeeding, why supporting breastfeeding trainees and employees is important and specifically how you can help. So I think that's a really easy resource that we can just share. I mean, we don't have to recreate the wheel every single time. And it's great that multiple departments have taken up this initiative. But I think in, in our case, we're really calling for a universal policy, but who the owner of that is, is, you know, a little bit tricky to figure out whether that's 
something at the ACGME level, something at the GME level of each individual institution, whether it's a kind of American Medical Association statement or who the kind of policy officer would be at each individual institution um, kind of remains to be determined. Mm -hmm. And if this is a right that people have, um, that these trainees have, um, it also should be something that we should empower medical students or people who are entering medical school um, to understand that they have this right and that um, perhaps they need to look at encouraging people to look at programs that do have these family family policies and the American Academy of Family Physicians actually says that this is an important thing to do uh, not only for the health of you know trainees but also it's going to help to recruit um, train people uh, families and um, also faculty which I, and I know is true um, there's good evidence that um, employers who treat their breastfeeding um, employees well and and um, provide accommodations actually these employees have a higher a greater sense of satisfaction and um, they'll work harder and longer for that employer um, so it's, it's also just good business practice as well so perhaps um, um, giving that that education to people before they even start medical school or residency to make sure that they're evaluating whether or not those policies are in place for them uh, would be helpful. So it's like, it's kind of like, you know, grassroots, um, you know, you just vote with your feet basically if, you know, for the program. Absolutely. And one of the things that we mentioned in our, our table in our paper was we suggested that if institutions do have a policy in place or just are, you know, willing to work on improving support for lactating residents and fellows that they indicate that their program is breastfeeding friendly on their website because, you know, in this day and age, applicants to the programs are looking at the websites for sure. And, you know, if, if someone's not in need of breastfeeding accommodations, then it's not going to take up much space to just say we're breastfeeding friendly. And if someone may need those, it might make a really big difference to them. Mm -hmm. I know I personally was pumping for my first child when I was doing surgery residency interviews and it was really tough. Um, it was the first time I was away from him. He was he was about six weeks old when I started and for those who aren't familiar, it's this kind of crazy match system where you have to apply to dozens of programs and then you are offered interviews at some and you go on anywhere from kind of 10 to 15 or maybe more interviews and so you have to fly there. There's generally an evening function and then an all-day function and then you fly back and you do this within a two to three month time period um, to kind of choose your program. So it's, it's a lot of traveling and it's a lot of running around and the days are packed. And as an applicant to a competitive program, it, it can be really intimidating to say, you know, thank you so much for the offer to interview. I see that you've already made this very detailed schedule for me, but could I possibly have some break time for personal needs you know right. and you might not want to disclose that you're breastfeeding or that you are a mother um it can be it can be a pretty scary thing to do so when i was at programs that were helpful and really accommodating of that such as my current program it was it was really eye-opening and told me a lot about what kind of culture the program had overall mm -hmm. so maybe what we need to do is take it out of the hands of someone the interviewee and put it into the hands of like the u.s breastfeeding committee or um, or state breastfeeding coalitions to say, here's our rating for the best residencies in these specialties for lactation support. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know, put the pressure on them, you know, to prove that they um, are doing the right thing. 
Right. Or even just as breastfeeding gets more normalized in our culture, I, I know a lot of the programs would email out and say, does anyone have any dietary restrictions that we need to know about for our dinner and you know, meals that we're going to share together? If, it was, if breastfeeding were more normalized, maybe another aspect of that, of that email would be, and are there any other personal accommodations that I should be aware of? And that would kind of you know, open, um, open the lines for people to say, actually, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so one last thing, unless other people have other topics they want to talk about in this, in, uh, or other things they want to talk about in this topic, um, is just the responsibility of the trainee. So AAFP makes it clear that the trainee has responsibility in this as well. Um, and uh, they talk about things like making sure that they fulfill their responsibility in advocating for themselves, making sure everyone knows that they're lactating um, when they need to take breaks on the different rotations, and then um, making sure that they respect the space that's provided for them. Um, so any, any thoughts about that? Or certainly if anyone else wants to make comments about that too. <laughs> Sure. I mean, it's a team effort, so everybody has a role to play. And, you know, obviously we have to have common courtesy when we're using a shared space like the lactation room and clean up after ourselves and leave everything in good working order. Um, but I think it's also, you know, incumbent on, on the trainees to just openly communicate with their teams and let them know, like I was saying before, when their, when their needs change. You know, like if you get mastitis, it might be kind of a personal thing to share. But if your team doesn't know that, they might not understand why you're needing to go and empty a little bit more frequently than you may have been prior to that. Um, or just, you know, letting them, letting them know where you're going to be or bouncing ideas off of them. Like I, I for example, just had to ask my team one day. I was like, okay, so I, I get here at five o'clock to get sign out. And then I check a lot of things on my own. And then we round as a team at six o'clock. And then at seven o'clock, we have required didactics, which go until nine o'clock. And then I'm expected to run to the operating room because the attending has already started the case. So where in that is the best time for me to pump? Because it's challenging to not be prepared for rounds, to step away during rounds, to step away during didactics, and clearly not really... Um, excusable to be late to the operating room if people don't know about that. So just communicating with the team so they understand your needs and working together to find the best time. And maybe you'll have to adjust your pump schedule a little bit, but um, I think everybody can work together and make it happen. Right. I think there's also, um, I've heard comments from different people um, over the years about not trusting that someone who's taking lactation breaks really needs them and do they really need 45 minutes and why do they need so much time and maybe they're taking advantage of the time and I think that that is a and that might be a concern for some people who are taking breaks um, who maybe are, have some depression or who are also trying to during their pumping time, trying to do some other things like they're buying a new house or they're, you know, <laughs> you know, spending that time, which they need, you know, to get some other stuff done. So I think that's probably part of the responsibility is, you know, attending to lactation and getting back to work. Um, otherwise, it makes it difficult for everyone else, unfortunately. Um, can I mention um, also oversupply in that um, list? that of just being personally responsible. Um, it's a controversial topic within Dr. Milk, but you know we embrace really strongly exact producing and understanding how your milk supply works over time. 
um, that it doesn't go up by a whole lot, and how to educate caregivers to feed bottles in a paced way. Um, and we find that a lot of mothers will build up, you know, massive stashes of frozen milk and create way more milk than their baby needs to grow currently at that moment. And then when they return to uh, not just a surgical uh, profession, but even in primary care, their emptying rates have to be much more often because of, not necessarily, but, but it depends on their storage capacity and how much they're making, a lot of variables, but oversupply um, does carry risk. Um, and I feel like if people can go into a return to work process with the mental outlook that I don't have to create a future milk supply and a current milk supply at the same time, you know, that I am going to reach my goals with a normal milk supply and exact producing, um, that that then mentally allows them to not create oversupply that then forces them to be pumping more often um, or not have the ability to have this plus minus that Helen's describing of this flexibility that you're going to need to have and you can't just look at your breasts and have a talk with them of <laughs> let's get with it and hold more for longer. <laughs> but if you're an exact producer versus someone who has oversupply, um, you, you may have a little more give there. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. That's a really good point. Um, so I think we'll wrap up. Um, I just have one other thought too about lactation support. So the American Academy of Family Physicians and perhaps you stated to Helen that providing lactation support for uh, trainees um, at work would be reasonable, particularly because they're in health systems, right? And <laughs> so um, they should have that available. Um, at our university, we our lactation consultants who service the university hospital have a point one designation for supportive employees. Um, so they can be contacted um, at any time for just helping, you know, any trainee with any question that they have. Oh, that's great. That's a wonderful uh, resource. Katrina was my personal uh, consultant <laughs> during my fellowship. But yeah, I think having a professional um, who would be available during working hours for residents would be a tremendous resource. Um, and and would, I would definitely advocate for that. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of resources at our institution. Um, and I think some of that is tied into us being a baby-friendly hospital, but I've, I think we have 11 IBCLCs, I believe. We have quite a few. We have weekly breastfeeding, or monthly, excuse me, breastfeeding support groups. Um, employees can get free pump kits that attach to the hospital-grade pumps that are in our lactation room. So there's a lot of resources, but unfortunately, I didn't know about any of them. Um, it just happened to be after I gave birth to my second child in the hospital and the lactation consultant rounded on me, I said some word or other that triggered her to realize that I was one of those annoying patients that knew things about medicine. <laughs> and she asked me what I did and I was like, oh, I work here. And she's like, oh, well, let me get you a free pump kit. But I didn't know to ask. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can do to improve um, letting trainees know what resources are available to them. And probably a great time would be in during those orientations that we all love so much, when we get all that information about employee resources, it would just be a time to list those resources. And I don't know if all hospitals have this, but I know that we have a return to work clearance appointment through occupational health when we come back from medical leave. Um, that would be a great time to disseminate information as well. 
That's a great idea. Yeah, uh, yeah. Communication is always an issue with what's what's available to us. And another place that that might be is um, just in the we a lot of in, uh, residencies have an intern survival guide that mm -hmm. they give out across the institution to all of the interns. And I was, you know, breastfeeding when I started internship. I'm like, oh, look, there's a hotline if I am suicidal, what to do if my pager falls in the toilet, but where do I go to pop? Where do I get support? And uh, so I think that, that that's a place. I would really encourage other people to think about starting local Dr. Milk chapters at um, their institutions. Um, Laurie, has made it really easy um, by, you know, making a document that sort of describes the steps and it's pretty straightforward. Um, so that is something that I have found to be a lot of fun. Um, and then I just, while I was, you know, had everyone thought I'd ask Rebecca, is there anything else that you really wanted to put into this awesome article that you didn't, you know, have the space to squeeze in? No, I mean, I think, um, a lot of the issues that have come up really address some of the things, which is kind of, you know, who ultimately from here is going to take the reins to, to affect change. And we're hoping that this will um, encourage interest and enthusiasm from some of the um, governing bodies for, for trainees to do that. Um, but I, um, I think, you know, Helen and Katrina both brought a lot of great ideas to it that I had not thought of. And, and I think we're all very proud of how it turned out and are hoping that um, it, will, it will get some circulation in the graduate medical education realm and, and uh, ultimately have a, a positive benefit. Mm -hmm. and, setting, and setting the, um, the pace for other institutions that may have similar setups with people coming back for training, whether it's, you know, engineer interns or um, other, you know, mentoring electricians. I have two electricians who are female in my practice. Um, and um, they, you know, need uh, similar combinations. Um, and they're working with all guys. So I think this is, this definitely can be set an example for other, um, other types of work as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Anyone else want to throw in anything before we close? All right. Well, Karen, I have to say it was really fun having some guests today, don't you think? Happy World Breastfeeding Month. Yeah, you too, Katrina. Oh, yeah. And if anyone, I don't know, you should post those toes that you had painted <laughs> with the World Breastfeeding Week. Did um, you see Lori's toes? We're matching. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. And we have our Rosie the Riveter um, poster that we're going to be posting some pictures of too. Nice. Nice. Well, thanks everyone. I, I um, please feel free to share this with um, people at different institutions. This podcast, I think this podcast, this discussion will be very helpful for um, people that are not used to hearing about these issues and are looking for some ideas. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, if anyone contacts you and wants to get in touch with us and get more information about what we've been working on at our own institutions or just kind of more resources, you know, please feel free to share my information. I'm always happy to talk and help spread the word and not have to recreate the wheel <laughs> over and over again. Perfect. Great. Well, thanks so much, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Bye.
For questions regarding this podcast, please contact us through our website at lacted.org. We have other educational projects, including the Clinical Question of the Week, our Little Green Book of Breastfeeding Management for Physicians, and our various educational courses and conferences for physicians and other breastfeeding supporters. If you want to see what we look like, check out our Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast Facebook page, where you can post any questions or comments about our podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with you in about four weeks.